All right, well, welcome back to our study of the kingdom of God. We have been working our way through uh, the intersection of uh, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God with the kingdoms of this world. And so asking the question, how do we as Christians who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven interact with uh, the, the world around us, uh, the cultures of the world that are not necessarily Christian but are governed by means of the Noahic covenant. And so uh, we've been discussing for the last several weeks this intersection of the kingdom and the culture of the world. And we've defined culture as all the ways of life, including knowledge, art, beliefs, customs, morals, and institutions that form a human society. And so we've looked at uh, the intersection of the arts and the sciences. Uh, last week, uh, we looked at the intersection of uh, the kingdom with economics. And this evening, we are going to discuss justice and civil government. These are the three uh, primary categories that are governed by the Noahic Covenant. If we turn to uh, Genesis chapter 9 again, we can see these three categories uh, in the Noahic Covenant. As we look at verses 1 and verse 7, uh, where it says in Genesis 9, 1, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then again in verse 7, And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply it. And so here we have uh, the commission given to humanity in the Noahic Covenant concerning uh, family. Uh, family, of course, is an institution of creation, but it is uh, reaffirmed here in the Noahic Covenant. And then we have... Uh, the idea of what we called enterprise institutions or businesses and economics uh, in verses 2 through 4. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And so we talked about the necessity of economic institutions and organizations to support uh, this mandate for humanity to flourish, to multiply, and to fill the earth. So we need to provide resources for people as they multiply their families and spread throughout uh, the world. And then in verses 5 and 6, uh, we see the Noahic Covenant take up the issue of justice. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So here we have a concern uh, about justice. Now this is a very general uh, concern, but I think we can kind of extrapolate some things out of it. It deals with one issue, uh, the issue of murder or the taking of a life, but I think we can extrapolate out uh, principles of justice that would apply just beyond that. Uh, we do have to be careful because if we start talking about uh, justice in regards to harm, then we have to, how do we define harm and what does it mean? And so we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight too. But the idea here is uh, that God is requiring justice in his common kingdom. Whoever sheds man's blood 
his blood will be shed. And so we've talked about this previously, the idea that the justice administered under the Noahic covenant is a justice that um, is retributive, right? The crime is committed and then justice is carried out after the fact in retribution. Uh, but we can extrapolate from this that we have justice, and just like we said, mankind multiplying, raising families, spreading over the earth, resources are necessary, and so the Noahic Covenant gives us the authorization for economic enterprises that would provide resources for this mandate to be fruitful and fill the earth. Likewise, as we're fruitful and fill the earth, we're going to have conflicts among men, and so here we're given this mandate to seek justice uh, and to uh, enact justice for wrongs that are done. And so doing so, uh, we would have this mandate for justice, and then as we try and figure out how to do that in any given society, we're going to end up with laws, uh, laws that dictate what is just, what is unjust, how are we punishing it, that sort of thing. And then, of course, we're going to end up with, we have to come up with some way to enforce those laws, uh, to carry out that justice. So that's going to be the institution of some sort of government in the civil sphere. Uh, so those things flow in that order from justice to law to government. So justice, God's requirement for justice is the highest ethic. Law should support that justice and government is authorized to enforce that law. Uh, they're not authorized to define what justice is. God has defined justice for us. So there's a, a hierarchy of this. Uh, I have a quote here from Hervin Bovink uh, on the issue of justice. He's a Dutch theologian uh, who wrote a very good systematic theology called Reformed Dogmatics. And in volume two, dealing with the attributes of God, he deals with the idea of justice. And he, he says this, he says, justice above all is the way in which the grace and love of God are maintained and made to triumph. So think about that. Justice is the maintenance of God's grace and love and making those two things to triumph. So if we think about this, he goes on to explain that the only reason, in, in here in the Noahic Covenant, it requires that if someone takes another person's life, that justice be enacted, Right? The only reason that that would be just that we do such a thing is because God, in his grace and his love and mercy for his creation, has granted to his creatures certain rights, the right to life, so to speak. So uh, the violation of that right then requires justice. So that justice uh, seeking to right this wrong of violating someone's rights is actually seeking to uphold God's grace and love to his creatures in the rights that God has inferred on them. So these rights are from God in his grace and his love, and so justice is seeking to maintain his grace and love in human society. And so we have to understand that all rights that we have are gifts from God. Uh, they are gifts of his grace and his love. But we also have to understand that justice in a fallen world uh, means that sometimes those rights that God has imbued into his creation are going to be violated because of man's sin. And so this sort of retributive justice is necessary. Where there is no sin before the fall in the garden or later in the eschatological kingdom, there's still justice. There's still the maintenance of God's grace and love, but it's no longer retributive because there's no sin being committed. 
right? Um, but here and now, we have to have retributive justice in order to right these wrongs. Uh, so in, the law follows justice as a means of explaining how we're going to do that. How are we going to punish the wrongdoer? For what crimes are we going to punish them? And then the government follows the law as a means of enforcing it. Now, if we think about the kingdom of heaven, the situation is reversed in the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, we don't start with justice. We start with a holy God, a holy king, who is altogether perfect and right. And then from him, we are given a perfect law reflecting the nature of that king. And then justice is defined by that perfect law given to us from our perfect ruler. So uh, the kingdom of heaven is upside down to the kingdoms of earth because it comes down from God and then we have that justice and then we have to work it out here on earth. So it's backwards in the common kingdoms to what it is uh, in the kingdom of heaven. We need to understand that the Noahic covenant does not promise or provide for us perfect justice. It can't. It's, It's The common kingdoms are comprised of sinful human beings. And so as Christians, we have to understand that perfect justice, that the eschatological justice that we want when every wrong will be righted, will not be accomplished here on earth. It will only be accomplished uh, when Christ returns. And so we think about uh, these other institutions of the Noahic Covenant, the family, the economic institutions, the arts and sciences, all this culture that we've talked about. We've said that it was provisional. It's temporary. If we go back to chapter 8, verse 22, it is while the earth remains. Those are the terms of the Noahic covenant. So the justice of this world and the governments and the laws of this world are temporary. And so their, their justice is not perfect. It is not final. It is imperfect. It is temporary. It's administered by sinful humans. And these sinful humans do not have perfect knowledge. They can't administer perfect justice because they don't know the heart. They don't have perfect knowledge of all the circumstances. Uh, They're not entirely impartial, right? We're influenced by our own prejudices and things uh, and sometimes driven by self-interest. So justice in this world is never uh, going to be perfect. We also need to recognize that the Noahic Covenant does promote Uh, what we would call uh, rectifying justice or retributive justice, right? It's a justice that seeks to right that which is wrong that has been done, a violation of someone's rights. It, it, It happens after the crime is committed. We then punish the one who committed the crime. This is the retribution. So there's a Latin phrase. You may or may not have heard this. It's called lex talionis. Uh, And this simply, lex means law. Talionis is where we get our word retaliation. And so this is the law of retaliation. Someone commits murder, they are to be judged, found guilty, and when they are found guilty, they're put to death as their punishment. Now, this works itself out in culture, right, more than just for the crime of murder. Right? We can think about murder, rape, theft, slander, all sorts of things um, that are violations of rights, primarily rights that we would recognize in the moral law of God and the Ten Commandments, and there would be a punishment for them. And we work those things out in our culture, and sometimes the punishment uh, is you know, what we might call the, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth sort of punishment. Uh, It's retributive, and it's the punishment fits the crime. So whatever the crime was, that's what the punishment is too. But sometimes we don't do that. Uh, Sometimes we seek a monetary uh, 
retribution of some kind or, or some other sort of punishment, right? Um, and those things can be difficult to figure out. What is the proportional monetary retribution uh, if someone take, take gouges another person's eye out, right? Well, what was that person's eye worth to them? The person who committed the crime, what is their eye worth to them? The person who was sinned against now has a right under the lex talionis to take their eye. So there can be a mutual agreement reached over what this eye is worth and a monetary compensation made uh, under, and that would still be just. We would still consider that just if both parties uh, have agreed to it under the law. Um, but it's diff difficult to calculate those things. The other thing we have to recognize is that Every wrong that is committed is not righted in society. It simply can't be. Uh, our, as a society even, we don't have complete knowledge. Certainly, our magistrates who are attempting to carry out justice do not have complete knowledge. And even if they did, think about all the little wrongs that are committed on a daily basis. Somebody cutting you off in traffic or bumping into you in the hall or saying a mean word to you. If we tried to retributively um, correct each and every single one of these things, it would not make for a peaceful society. So there's a certain amount of forbearance that happens as we kind of overlook some minor uh, offenses and only seek justice for the really important things. Um, justice should serve the goals of the Noahic Covenant, which are the propagation of families, the multiplication of humanity on the earth, and uh, the human flourishing that is necessary uh, through economic activity. And so justice should seek to protect humanity, life, the family, um, the lives of the citizens of a particular nation. It should seek to protect the economic interests of the citizens of that nation. Uh, it should not be done in such a way that it becomes detrimental to the peace of the society that it's seeking to serve. We should also recognize that the Noahic Covenant affirms some basic human rights by being made in the image of God we have certain rights, right? The, the right to life is one of them. Man is made in the image of God, so man's life has a certain honor and dignity to it, and so it should not be uh, arbitrarily taken. No one else has the right to take someone else's life just because they want to. Now, we think about that. The Noahic Covenant does not give us um, any exceptions or uh, any, any sort of way to judge, well, this life is of more value than this one is. No, all humans are equal under the law of the Noahic Covenant. All life is the same. It doesn't matter how rich you are, what color your skin is, what, it doesn't matter, right? All human life is valuable under the Noahic Covenant. It doesn't say whoever sheds the blood of a rich man or whoever sheds the blood of whatever, Right? It's just whoever sheds man's blood. Uh, so all are to be treated equal under the law. We also notice that these rights that we're talking about inferred to us by God could be referred to as negative rights in the sense that they are rights not to be murdered, the right not to be raped, the right not to be robbed, the right not to be slandered. Okay, they're negative rights in that sense. And these rights are universal, right? Again, no exceptions or exclusions to these rights. No one should ever commit any murder, rape, theft, etc. against any other person. There are no exceptions to that. There's nobody that, well, 
those people, it's okay if we murder them or steal from them. No, that's not how the law works here in the Noahic Covenant. And notice that these are not positive rights, right? We don't have the right to things. We have the right not to be murdered, not to be raped, not to be robbed. We don't have the right to things. And this gets really tricky because in our society, we have granted people a lot of rights to things. And these would be such things as welfare rights, the right to food, the right to health care, the right to education. Um, these are not necessarily bad things. They're good things for a society if all of our citizens are fed and educated and housed and healthy, right? But they're good goals for society, but they're not rights that are granted to us under the terms of the Noahic Covenant. Uh, and so seeking to enact those in a society is really stepping outside the bounds of how the Noahic Covenant would have government to function. Those things would be better served and provided for the people uh, by means of the family or economic activity in a free market. Uh, if we think about, uh, I've had conversations in the past with my own family members who have said, well, listen, if you're going to oppose abortion, abortion on the grounds that uh, human life has dignity and we shouldn't take this human life, then you are obligated after the child is born to be in favor of government-sponsored welfare to take care of this child from cradle to the grave. Well, not under the Noahic Covenant. We're not. No, that's a responsibility for parents. Economic activity supports that responsibility. But the government is not given the authority by God in the Noahic Covenant to do those sorts of things because it would require the violation of other negative rights. Primarily, it would require the violation of someone's right not to be robbed because now we have to go collect taxes from other people, money, in order to support these other people's children or whatever. So it's a very sticky, thorny issue, but just the point is the Noahic Covenant guarantees or grants from God to man these negative rights, but not these sorts of positive rights. Uh, if we start granting these positive rights, we run into trouble because they are not universal, right? Not everyone in the society is going to be given uh, the same amount of food by the government. It's, they're not reciprocal, right? Every one of us has the responsibility not to take an, every other person's life. But welfare rights, we don't all have the responsibility to feed everybody else. So they're not universal, they're not reciprocal. And then we start having to ask questions. Well, how much? By whom? To whom? How do we govern this? The Noahic Covenant makes no um, attempt to do that, and so we shouldn't either. The justice of the Noahic Covenant is rectifying justice. It is rectifying uh, wrongs when someone's negative rights have been violated. Um, the next thing we need to realize is that the call to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth has given authority uh, to humanity to establish economic industries and institutions that would support that mandate. And so too, the call for justice has given humanity authorization for the establishment of judicial institutions that would support this mandate to pursue justice. Victims cannot pursue justice for themselves, right? If they could, they wouldn't be a victim, right? The woman who has a right not to be raped can't pursue justice against the man who would rape her. If she could, if she was strong enough to do that, she would not be raped in the first place. So society has to step in and seek justice in these sorts of cases. 
uh, Van Drunen in uh, his book on politics comments and says, what the Noahic Covenant says generally about the human commission to pursue justice, Romans 13 attributes specifically to civil government. And so the idea is that God has granted to humanity this mandate to pursue justice, and any given society then delegates that authority into the hands of a few, the civil magistrates, who would then enact that justice, and that is uh, authorized by Romans 13, that these magistrates have been appointed by God for this purpose. But let's turn to Romans 13 real quick, because I want to make a comparison with a couple of verses. Uh, We look at Romans 13 often in this discussion, but sometimes we... uh, separate it from its context in the end of chapter 12. So if we look at Romans 13, particularly verse 4, this is where we see the discussion of the civil magistrate. It says, For he is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So we can see we have the fact that this magistrate is appointed by God as an avenger, right? So this is retributive justice. He is avenging the one who is wronged to execute wrath on the one who is the wrongdoer, the one who practices evil. Well, now if we look back at chapter 12, beginning in verse 17, speaking to the individual Christian, Paul says, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we can see a contrast right here uh, between the ethic of the kingdom of heaven for the citizens of the kingdom of heaven versus the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant authorizes humanity in a general sense, delegated to civil magistrates to pursue Uh, vengeance, to pursue retributive justice. The individual does not have that authority to do that on their own. And in fact, the individual Christian is called to something quite different. We are called to love our enemy, to feed him, to do good to him in return for the evil that he would do to us. And we are to do that because we know and we trust that ultimate vengeance, eschatological justice, will be accomplished by God. It belongs to God. So even if justice is not served here on earth, We can trust that it will be served in the end. So as we begin to discuss how this gets worked out in society, I said that law follows justice in human society. So there are two things that we might consider, customs and laws. Customs are the norms of conduct that people voluntarily keep and expect others to keep, but without the threat of physical penalty. Right? There may be, if you violate some customs, uh, you may get some dirty looks, or you may have people that don't want to talk to you anymore, but you're not going to be thrown in prison for violating a custom. Once it gets to the point where you'll be thrown in prison, it's no longer a custom, it's become a law at that point. Right? You, a law is a, a behavioral norm that people are supposed to keep under the threat of physical punishment, under the threat of coercion. Now, this is true across the board, not just of civil governments, Right? Families have customs and laws. 
parents raise their children and there are certain customs like eating dinner together or doing family worship before bedtime or a certain customs surrounding Thanksgiving or Christmas or New Year or whatever. And there are laws in the family that if the child violates the law, there will be punishment. If they lie to us, if they hit their sibling or whatever, there will be retributive punishment, justice served. So families have customs and laws. Businesses have customs and laws. They have certain ways that they do things um, that are customs for them, and they have laws. If an employee uh, is entered voluntarily into this agreement to work for certain pay, but then the employee doesn't keep his side of the agreement, he doesn't do the work, he'll get fired, and he'll be escorted off the property because there's a, a, a law of this employer. You don't do the work, we don't pay you. That's the law. Right? And it's enforced. We stop writing you checks. Uh, so businesses have customs and laws. Well, society has customs and laws as well. Uh, and so sometimes those customs become law, uh, but the laws are those things which are enacted in a written form or at least an understood form. We can think about English common law it wasn't necessarily written, but it was understood. This is the law, and if you violate it, there will be punishment at the hands of the civil government. So the government is given authority then by God, they're appointed by God according to Romans 13, to enforce these laws. Uh, but we have to understand that the government's authority is provisional, right? It's temporary. Now, it's more permanent than parental authority. Parental authority lasts for 18 years. I don't know. It changes over the course of time, right? When they're younger, you have more authority. You enforce more law. The older they get, the more you become an advisor role. You're still in authority as long as they're in your home. But things change over time. Eventually, the goal of parental authority is to make itself obsolete, right? Your kids grow up and leave the home, and you're no longer in authority over them. Um, employers, the authority of an employer in an economic situation is limited, right? If the employee doesn't like the terms of the contract, they quit, and the employer no longer has authority over them. Uh, the employer cannot tell them what to eat for dinner. The, their, their authority has limits. Governmental authority has limits and term, term limits as well, but slightly differently, right? Because if you're born into America, I mean, you have the option of leaving. You could immigrate to another country, but by and large, we're kind of stuck with the authority of the government in the nation that we're born into, and it's generally going to last for our entire lifetime. So yes, it's temporary, but it's more long-lasting typically than parental or employer authority. Uh, and so we have to be very careful with government authority because of that. Uh, we have to be careful that we do not give too much authority into the hands of sinful men. The governmental authority is imperfect because it is enforced by sinful men. And we have to understand, too, that everything the government does comes with a threat of force. It comes with a threat of coercion. If you don't pay your taxes, we will garnish your wages or throw you in jail. There are penalties. So everything the government does comes with a threat of force, and therefore everything the government does must be justified under the law. They shouldn't be doing things just because they have the power to do them. Now, this doesn't mean that they won't. Governments are corrupt and uh, populated by sinful people, and so sometimes they will. But in an ideal situation under the Noahic Covenant, every action the government takes would be justified. Here's why we're doing this, because it serves the justice in this society. 
government should enforce the rule of law and not the will of a ruler, right? We see in the Noahic Covenant, God doesn't establish and say, these people here will tell you what is just and tell you what your laws will be. No, he, he, de- he delegates that authority to mankind in general under the, the moral law that is written on our hearts. We know what is just and we should enforce it. So government should simply enforce the rule of law and not the will of one individual or small group of individuals. Government authority is there for the protection of negative rights. Um, It's there to protect us from having our life taken, from having our livelihood taken, from those sorts of things. But also we have to understand that because those negative rights are there, that government also has an obligation to preemptively protect them under certain circumstances. Particularly, we could think about national defense, right? that the government should protect its citizens, shouldn't wait until its citizens have been attacked and invaded by a foreign country to go, oh, well, I guess now we have to retributively punish this other nation. No, they can preemptively protect their borders. Uh, So there's a certain authority granted to protect against injustice being done as well. But there are limits to governmental authority. It's not authorized under the terms of the Noahic Covenant uh, to um, seek... So if we do say that the government is authorized to protect its citizens from their negative rights being violated, the government is not authorized to seek to perfect its citizens. Um, It's not authorized under the Noahic Covenant for the government to try and make better people out of its citizens. Good goals for the society, for our citizens to be better people, but just not the role of the government. It's the role of parents. It's the role of the church. It's the role of employers to train employees it's not the government's job it's not it hasn't been given to them under the terms of the noahic covenant to do that they're not they've not been authorized under the terms of the noahic covenant to provide for their citizens again that is the role of families and economic institutions um, we should no one person other than maybe children to their parents have the right to demand the fruit of another person's labor you have to feed me that's not how it should work according to the Noahic Covenant. So we have to ask the question then, well, what happens uh, when the government oversteps the limits of the authority that has been granted to it? And it does it all the time. Uh, When the government begins to step outside the boundaries of just simply enforcing the law in a pursuit of justice, but instead starts to seek to do other things. And corrupt, sinful individuals abuse their power, and so government often abuses its power. In fact, I would argue uh, back here in Genesis that the reason for the, the Noahic flood to begin with was an abuse of government power. Um, if you look at chapter 6, and the judgment that God, when God announces this coming flood, um, he has told us that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Uh, there was violence throughout the earth. And particularly, it talks about um, those who were um, taking advantage of others, gathering up many wives to themselves, taking whatever women they wanted. And so uh, this kind of reflects on kings, probably rulers of the earth who were doing this, abusing their power and authority. And so God uh, punishes them with the flood and reestablishes this covenant with Noah. And so the government often does abuse its power 
Uh, and so what are we to do in response to that? What are citizens under the Noahic covenant to do? And what are citizens of the kingdom of heaven to do? Well, if we look at a couple of passages, Romans 13 again, we have the instruction here. It says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinances of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from him, from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, we note two things here. God appointed the ministers, and he has commissioned them to pursue justice. Sometimes they don't, but they have still been appointed by God. Um, God is sovereign. He knows when they're not acting justly. He knows when they are doing wrong. Uh, But as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we know that God is still in control of this situation, and he has commanded us to be good citizens and, where possible, uh, to be subject to the governing authorities. But citizens should and can remind magistrates that they are to enforce the rule of law and not the will of man. Uh, So if we turn and look at Acts chapter 16, we can see an example of this. In Acts chapter 16, uh, Paul and Silas are uh, imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And uh, this is the story of the Philippian jailer. Uh, If you'll remember, God opens the doors of the prison, but Paul and Silas don't leave. The Philippian jailer takes them to his home. Uh, And they are preaching to him and to his household. And beginning in verse 35, it says, And when it was day, the magistrates sent officers saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. The officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. We can see that uh, the magistrates acted rashly. They didn't investigate the situation. They didn't find out that the men they were imprisoning and beating were Roman citizens, and so they violated the rule of law. And so Paul holds them accountable for that, but he does so in a peaceful sort of way. I mean, he even leaves town, which they asked him to do, but he does hold them accountable to the rule of law. God has delegated... uh, the pursuit of justice to human society and has appointed that that would be done through civil magistrates. But ultimately, God is still the judge. Justice will be done in the end. And so, if at all possible, we are to live at peace uh, and to be subject to them, but to call them prophetically, so to speak, to call them to do their duty, to do their job, to pursue justice and the rule of law. But what happens when the law itself is unjust? 
What do we do when society has decided uh, to enforce an unjust law? Well, a couple of things. First of all, Christians should refuse to sin. Just as we said in our pursuit of the arts and sciences and economics that we should not sin in our pursuit of those things, we should not sin just because a law passed in the country tells us to. And we can think of several examples of this in the scripture. Let's just flip back to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 here, uh, the apostles uh, Peter and John have been arrested uh, for preaching the name of Christ. And after they are arrested uh, and put on trial here by the Jewish authorities, if we look at Acts chapter 4 verse 18, it says, so they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Well, what would we do if the state of Michigan or the United States passed the law and said, you can't speak publicly in the name of Jesus. Well, what is John and Peter's response? But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old, on whom the miracle of healing had been performed. And so then they go out and they continue to speak in the name of Christ. And so if you flip over to chapter 5, uh, look down at verse 26, they're brought in again. It says, Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So the idea is that Christians obey God rather than men. If, if a law is passed that tells us, commands us to sin, we don't obey that law. We obey God. And so we can think of other examples of this uh, in Daniel chapter 3. Um, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing uh, to bow down and to worship the golden image uh, and willing to undergo the punishment that might come their way in the civil court of law for not doing that uh, because they were willing to obey God. Daniel, likewise, in chapter 6, uh, told not to pray to anyone except to the king, and instead he goes, as was his custom, and prays to the Lord. He obeys God, and you know, interestingly, in Daniel chapter 6, verse 4, it says that his enemies uh, got this law passed because they could find no fault with Daniel as far as the kingdom was concerned. Daniel was such a good citizen that they had to make a new law just to trip him up uh, because they could not find any fault in him. But he refused to obey a law that would have obligated him to sin. Uh, we're told in First Peter Chapter 2, flip over there real quick. First Peter chapter 2, it says, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So we're to, we're to obey the magistrates, we're to honor the king, but we're to do so in the fear of the Lord and as the Lord's servants, um, not 
in such a way that we're looking for a way to justify our own sin, but not obeying them when they command us to sin. The other thing that we can do is we can work um, to get that law changed if there's an unjust law, uh, to get it overturned, to get it changed. And there are two ways to do that. One is through legislative means. In our nation, we have the, the amazing right in the history of man to work in legislative means to get a law overturned or a new law passed. But secondly, we work to change the hearts and the minds of our fellow citizens so that the culture as a whole would want to change that law. And one example that comes to my mind from church history is William Wilberforce, who not only worked to change the laws of England, but worked to change the hearts and minds of his fellow Englishmen concerning the slave trade. He worked to convince them that the Africans were uh, humans every bit as much as the Englishmen were, and therefore deserving of being treated as such. So, justice, law, government. How does it work in the kingdom of heaven? Well, we have the perfect government with Christ as our king, the perfect law reflecting our king. We, have, we know that eschatological justice will be served in the end by our king. And when that happens, there will be no more need for rectifying justice, but rather there will be a joyful justice as God's goodness and mercy and love to his creatures is maintained. What about in the church? How does it work out now in the church as an outpost of the kingdom of God? Well, we know that Christians are justified by our faith in Christ, according to Romans chapter 3. We know, according to Romans chapter 8, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we know that in the church, there is to be a different ethic than what there is in the kingdoms of this earth, particularly uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, it commands us to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. That is not part of the Noahic covenant. Justice under the Noahic covenant does not seek forgiveness. It seeks retribution, compensation, uh, some sort of rectifying justice. But in the church, between believers, we are to forgive each other. We're not to go, hey, you wronged me, so now you need to pay me. We're just to forgive. It's a different ethic altogether. Uh, and the purpose of that forgiveness and that ethic and not seeking retribution uh, is redemptive. Uh, if we think back to First uh, Corinthians chapter 5 and the man in the church who was in sin and refusing to repent, Paul instructs them to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Here's why, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So the ethic of the church in its pursuit of justice is different because we're seeking redemption, something that the Noahic covenant doesn't offer and the new covenant does. Uh, and so we are to uh, act as believers in different ways. Particularly, uh, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that Paul instructs us that disputes between believers should not be adjudicated in secular civil courts by unbelievers, right? They should be settled in the church because we have a different ethic in the church, an ethic of forgiveness, uh, an ethic of uh, turning the other cheek. And so disputes between believers should be settled differently and not in the civil courts. Uh, we know from 1 Peter 2, which we've already looked at, that we are to obey the law and the government as far as possible without sinning. But we also know, according to 
Acts 16 and again in Acts 22, we see Paul holding the civil magistrates to account, to accountable to enforce the rule of law. And we also see in Acts 25 verse 11, Paul exerting his rights as a citizen of the common kingdom, as a Roman citizen, appealing to Caesar and exerting his rights. So Christians in their ethic with one another in the church follow a different path, but in the common kingdoms of the Noahic covenant, we are allowed to operate in those kingdoms in the ways that the, the Noahic covenant uh, allows, but we should do so uh, with, while trying to avoid sin. And finally, we need to recognize that as Christians, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, our hope is not in the civil government. Our hope is not in men. It's not in uh, the law of society writ large. It's not uh, in the justice under the Noahic covenant. Even if the, the Noahic covenant was perfectly executed in our society, it still would not offer redemption. It would not offer eschatological hope. Our hope is in Christ, our righteous king, perfect lawgiver, and just God who will in the end see that the wicked are punished uh, and that those who have trusted in his righteousness receive the reward that he earned for them. And so next week, that will be our final session in this study as we look at our eschatological hope for the kingdom to come. Let's close in a word of prayer.